this is Naima Novetsky from TanakhStudy.com. Over the last few classes, we've been looking at Chapter 23, which deals with the holiday cycle. Today, we'll move into Chapter 24, which speaks of three distinct topics. First, the lighting of the Ner Tamid, the continuous lamp on the menorah. Second, the laws regarding the showbread on the Shulchan, the table of the tabernacle. And third, the story of the blasphemer, one of the only narrative sections in all of Sefer Vayikra. At first glance, none of these appeared to be related to the motif of the holiness of time that is the subject of the previous chapter. Yet on closer look, we note that the first two units of our chapter both share a common theme, that something be constant and continuous, tamid. This word repeats several times in our unit. In the three verses which speak of the menorah, the word appears three times, and regarding the bread of the shulchan, the word appears once more. In addition, we are told that these loaves will be a brit olam, an eternal covenant, continuing the theme of continuity. While both the menorah and the shulchan have been discussed in earlier parshiot, the new twist that our chapter adds is specifically this concept of continuity. And it's likely that this idea, that this is the idea which connects it to the larger theme of the holiness of time. Rav Hirsch develops this idea in a beautiful way. He suggests that on the holidays, the subject of the last chapter, we commemorate both Hashem's spiritual revelation in a specific moment of time and his providence and providing for our physical needs at a specific season of the year. Yet really, Hashem is continuously looking after both our physical and our spiritual welfare, not just on these specific days, but tamid, always, throughout the year. This idea, he suggests, is symbolized in the constant light on the menorah, symbol of spiritual good, and the constant bread on the shulchan, symbol of physical good. Let's start by looking at the verses which discuss the Ner Tamid, the continuous lamp. Ba'idaber Hashem and Moshe Limor, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Ta'avet b'nei Yisrael v'ikhoi l'chashem en zayit zach katit l'ma'or l'halot Ner Tamid. Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause a lamp to burn continually. The verse employs an interesting choice of language. When speaking of lighting the candelabrum, it does not say lahadlik ner tamid, to light a continuous lamp, but lahalot ner tamid, to raise up a continuous lamp. The Gemara notes this and explains that the priest must make sure to hold the flame at each wick for a long enough time that the wick will rise up and burn on its own. If the menorah symbolizes the light of Torah and the priest is supposed to be the teacher of Torah, then this Gemara is laying out a beautiful metaphor, an important lesson in teaching. The job of a teacher is to make himself extraneous, to enable his students to become independent learners so that they can learn on their own even without the teacher. It is the job of the teacher to, of the teacher to light their wick, to give them of their own Torah knowledge, but then to let them shine on their own. A second question raised by the verse is the nature of this ner tamid. What does it mean that there should be a continuous lamp? Does this imply that the oil should burn 24-7, every hour of the day, every day? Or just that it should be continuously lit, lit each day? Verses 3 and 4 elaborate. Outside of the veil of the testimony in the tent of meaning shall Aaron arrange it from evening to morning before Hashem continually. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. 
Al Hamanorah Torah, Yarocha Tanevot, Lifne Hashem, Tamid. He shall arrange the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before Hashem continually. Verse 3 implies that the lamp needs to be lit only from evening until morning, Me'erev Ad Boker. If so, the word Tamid does not mean 24 hours a day, but each and every day for part of the day. However, the phrase in verse 4, and he should set the lamps before God always, might instead imply that it is to burn all of the time. This ambiguity in the verses might be what leads Chazal to suggest that though most of the lamps on the menorah were lit only for the night, there was one lamp of the seven, the Ner Hamaravi, the western lamp of the menorah, which was lit 24-7, continuously, without a break. We must ask, though, why is this necessary? What is the need for a Ner Tamid? The Rambam gives a somewhat practical answer. Having a lit-up home makes a certain impression on the onlookers. Since Hashem wanted the nation to treat the Mikdash with awe and respect, it needed to look respectful and be awe-inspiring. The continuous light helped to accomplish that goal. The Midrash, in contrast, views the mitzvah as being somewhat symbolic. The eternal light represents the relationship between Hashem and Bnei Israel. As long as we light Hashem's light, He will shine light down upon us in return. If we constantly think of Him, He will constantly think of us. With that, let's move to the second section of the chapter, which discusses the table and showbread. Before we begin looking at the verses, though, I want to give credit for what I'm about to say. Almost everything I'm about to share is based on an article on the Lechem HaPanim from the website alatorah.org. So let's look inside. Verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes of it. Two tenths parts of an ifa shall be in one cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before Hashem. These verses mandate baking twelve loaves and arranging them in two groups of six on the table in the tabernacle. Verse 7 You shall put pure frankincense on each row. That it may be to the bread for a memorial, an offering made to Hashem. Biyom Hashabbat, Biyom Hashabbat Yarchanu, Lifne Hashem Tamid, Me'it B'nai Israel, Brit Olam. Every Shabbat day he shall set it in order before Hashem continually. It is on the behalf of the children of Israel, an everlasting covenant. And finally, verse 9, Baital Aaron Ulevanav, Ba'achaluhu B'makom Kadosh, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. Ki Kodesh Kadashim Hulo, Me'ishe Hashem, Chok Olam. For it is most holy to him of the offerings of Hashem made by fire by a perpetual statute. The verses we just read raise several questions. First, our chapter refers to the loaves as chalot, while Shmo 25 calls them lechem hapanim. What is the meaning of each term, and what does it teach about the nature of this bread? Second, the verses mandate that there be 12 loaves, arranged in two groups of six. Is there any significance to this? Third, the laying out of the bread is referred to as a brit olam, a term which is not found by any of the other rites done in the tabernacle. What does this term mean, and why is it used only by the lechem hapanim? Next, why are the loaves arranged on Shabbat specifically? Is this a symbolic act? But if so, what does it represent? Finally, and most importantly, why are we laying out bread at all? What is the purpose of the entire ritual? We'll look at three different approaches to this last question and try to answer at least some of the others along the way. 
A first approach, taken by the Midrash Agadah, sees the Shulchan, the table, rather than the twelve loaves, as a focus of the mitzvah. It suggests that the table was meant to represent the dining hall of Hashem's earthly palace. The Midrash emphasizes that Hashem had no need for the entire Mishkan, and that the request to build a house stemmed not from Him, but from the people. Since the nation knew how to relate to Hashem only via human models of relationship, they desired to honor Hashem in the way that subjects glorify a king, by building him a palace replete with all the rooms needed by humans. Each area of the Mishkan and its accompanying vessels correspond to a different room in this palace. The bronze altar represents the kitchen, outside and far away from the king's actual throne. The outer sanctum, the Kodesh, with the Shulchan, Menorah, and incense altar, was like a living room, providing food, light, and aromatic fragrances. Finally, the inner sanctum, with the ark, symbolizes the king's private abode and throne, to which access is much more limited. It's possible, according to this position, that the table would be set specifically on Shabbat, because festive days are those in which servants normally prepare a feast and set the table. In addition, since Shabbat testifies to Hashem's role as creator and king, it's an appropriate day to honor him in his palace. The bread might be called lechem hapanim because they were placed lifnei before Hashem. A second approach suggests that the table and showbread symbolize that Hashem is the source of sustenance for all of mankind. According to Barbanel, the ark symbolizes the Torah, while the three vessels of the outer sanctum represent the rewards promised to those who follow its laws. The table stands for physical blessings, the menorah for wisdom and intellectual gifts, and the incense altar for spiritual rewards. According to him, many aspects of the table and bread serve to symbolize this abundance. For example, Rashi following Bavli Menachot suggests that the bread was called lechem hapanim after its form. It had many faces or sides. If so, perhaps the shape was chosen, was chosen to further express the symbolism of abundance and blessing. Abarbanel asserts that the fact that the bread is always supposed to be on the table represents the continuous nature of Hashem's providence and blessings to those who abide by His commandments. Similarly, there are 12 breads specifically to represent the 12 months of the year, showing how Hashem provides for all the entire year long. Abarbanel draws a connection between the showbread and the manna, suggesting that the two groupings of six breads represent the six days of the week in which the nation was provided for by Hashem's miracles in both the evening and morning. The bread is arranged by the priest specifically on Shabbat, the day the manna did not fall. The comparison might be meant to teach that just as Hashem provided for the nation in the wilderness through the manna, so too he, he continues to provide for them always. Thus, the lechem hapanim is supposed to help B'nai Israel always recognize Hashem as their provider. A third, very distinct understanding of the mitzvah is suggested by Rav Chovav Yechieli in an article entitled Ta'aroch Lefanai Shulchan, HaShulchan V'Lechem HaPanim. Drawing on the verse's statement that the rite is a brit olam, an eternal covenant, he suggests that the bread is supposed to act as a covenant-sealing meal which renews the eternal covenant between the nation and Hashem. To understand the idea, a little background. In Tanakh, covenants are often sealed with an accompanying meal. For example, the treaties of Yaakov and Laban, Yitzchak and Avimelech, David and Avner, are all accompanied by a meal. As such, Rav Yechieli suggests that here too, the eating of the showbread symbolized the sealing of the covenant made at Sinai. The priests, as representatives of the nation, 
ate of the loaves on a weekly basis to continuously renew the covenant. While the frankincense is sacrificed as a burnt offering for Hashem, as a sign that Hashem too is partaking of the covenantal meal. According to this reading, the Shulchan is very connected to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark stored the documents containing the stipulations of the covenant, the Luchot Habrit, while the table represented the agreement of the two sides to abide by it. Rabbi Chiyeli suggests that several similarities in the form of the two vessels reinforce the connection between the two. He points out that both vessels are rectangular and made of acacia wood covered with gold. Each vessel is surrounded by a zer zahav, a decorative molding of gold. And finally, both vessels have specifically four rings of gold. He sees in the choice of 12 breads a symbol of the 12 tribes, Hashem's partners in the covenant. Moreover, he points out that the division into two groups of six might be common to other covenantal ceremonies as well. For example, on Mount Eval and Guizim, the 12 tribes were similarly divided into two groups to renew the covenant of Sinai. Why is it called Lechem HaPanim? This approach might build on the literal meaning of Panim as face and suggest that the Lechem HaPanim represents the face-to-face -face nature of the covenant. Finally, according to this approach, it was specifically on Shabbat that the bread was replenished because Shabbat is also called a Brit Olam and itself commemorates the nation's covenantal relationship with God. So to summarize briefly, the table and showbread have been understood as either the dining hall of Hashem's palace here on earth, a symbol of Hashem's provident, or a covenant sealing meal continuously renewing the covenant between Hashem and the nation. Moving to the last section of our chapter, the story of the blasphemer in verses 10 through 23. This story is divided into three parts. Verses 10 through 12 describe the incident, or perhaps the crime, someone blaspheming the name of Hashem. Verses 13 through 22 speak of the judgment, Hashem's communication to Moshe regarding what is the proper protocol in such a situation. And finally, verse 23 speaks of the execution of that judgment. As we read each section, we'll point out some of the questions that the story raises and then try to put it all together at the end. Verses 10 through 12 open the story. The son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and the son of the Israelite woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name of God and cursed. And they brought him to Moshe. His mother's name was Shlomit, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody until the will of Hashem should be declared to them. Our verses are interesting both in what they share and in what they omit. We are not told the identity of either of the two quarreling men, but the verse goes out of its way to share that the blasphemer was only half Israelite, born to an Israelite mother but an Egyptian father. We wonder why this is relevant and how the information might help us understand the story. Second, we are told that the two men fought, but we are not told about what, even though again, this would seem to be relevant to the situation. Finally, verse 11 shares that presumably in the context of this quarrel, the individual cursed using the name of God. It is somewhat ambiguous though, if the curse was aimed at Hashem himself, or if he cursed his rival using Hashem's name. The next set of verses detail Hashem's response to the incident. 
telling the nation what the law is in such a case. As we'll see, though, Hashem's response does not seem to be totally relevant to the case at hand. Verse 13, Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Bring out of the camp him who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. The El Bnei Yisrael to Daber Limor, Ish Ish Ki Kalel Elokav Benasachet O. You shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Benokev Shem Hashem, Mot Yumat, Ragum Yegemuvo, Kol Heida, Kager Kaezrach Benatvo Shem, Yumat. He who blasphemes the name of Hashem, he shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the foreigner as well as the native born. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Up until this verse, Hashem's response seems fairly to the point. He declares that the blasphemer has committed a capital crime whose specific punishment is death by stoning. And then he sets the general rule that one who curses using a generic name of God will be punished, but one who uses a specific proper name of God will be killed. The verse goes out of its way to emphasize that this is true whether the blasphemer be a foreign be a foreign person or a native-born, perhaps to show that the punishment given to the son of the Egyptian is irrespective of his status. Anyone who cursed would have received capital punishment. The next set of verses, though, appear out of place, for Hashem now continues to discuss laws of assault and damages. Verse 17, He who strikes any man mortally shall surely be put to death. He who strikes an animal mortally shall make it good, life for life. Verse 19. If anyone gingers his neighbor as he has done, so shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. As he has injured someone, so shall it be done to him. He who killed an animal shall make it good. He who killed a man shall be put to death. You shall have one kind of law for the foreigner as well as the native-born. I am Hashem, your God. Hashem here lays out what we might refer to as measure-for-measure measure punishment for assorted cases of assault, from killing to maiming. Again, ending with the statement that these laws apply to all, to the foreigner and native-born alike. At first glance, these laws have nothing to do with our story, and we wonder why they appear here. In fact, one might initially think that our story ended in verse 16 with the setting of the general laws for blasphemy, and that these verses are simply the next set of laws in Sefer Vayikra. However, the last verse of our chapter makes such a suggestion untenable, for it returns to the story of the blasphemer. Verse 23. Moshe spoke to the children of Israel, and they brought out to him who, and they brought out him who had cursed out of the camp and stoned him with stones. The children of Israel did as Hashem commanded Moshe. This verse speaks of the stoning of the one who cursed, clearly setting this verse as the end of the unit and making us ask once again. Why then do the middle verses digress to speak about an eye for an eye and other damages? So let's put our questions together. First, 
How are we to understand our story? Who is this blasphemer? Of what relevance is his lineage? And what is the fight all about? Second, what is the point of the digression in the middle to talk about general laws of naming? Finally, how does our story relate to its context, both to the immediate context of the laws regarding the menorah and the table, and the larger context of holiness, which is the subject of this section of Sefer Vayikra? Rashi, drawing on the Midrash, attempts to fill in the background of our story. He suggests that the man had attempted to set up a tent in the tribe of Dan, his mother's tribe, but the people told him that he was not allowed to, since the laws of inheritance and placement in the camp go after the father, not the mother. He, being born of an Egyptian father, could thus not put up his tent among the tribe of Dan. He took the case to court, was found to be in the wrong, and in his anger cursed Hashem. Most of this reconstruction is obviously not in the text, but is drawing off the fact that the verses emphasize the blasphemer's half-Israelite lineage and assuming that the argument must have been related to that. Vayikor Rabbah instead connects the fight to the earlier part of the chapter, suggesting that the story is told here perhaps because it relates to what precedes it. The Midrash suggests that perhaps the fight emerged because the man had mocked the laws of the showbread, questioning how could it be that we honor a king with seven-day-old bread that is kept from Shabbat to Shabbat? Upon hearing his mockery, a second Israelite rebuked him, leading to the quarrel in which he cursed his neighbor. I think that one of the important differences between these two suggestions raised in the Midrashim is how they view the progression from the initial grievance to the cursing. According to the first approach, the man starts with a civil grievance. He goes to court, does not get the verdict he desires, and leaves angry, not at the court, but at God, and so he curses Hashem. In the second scenario, in contrast, the man actually starts with a religious grievance, mocking God's laws. But in the end, this becomes a fight with a neighbor. By mid-fight, it's no longer God at whom the person is angry, but his neighbor, and so he curses not Hashem, but his neighbor using God's name. Both scenarios reveal so much about human nature and the psychology behind grievances and anger how so often our anger is misdirected or grievances get confused, and of course, how one thing leads to another. The second scenario presented is also important because it highlights something that we sometimes forget when we read the verses. Our story is not only about cursing with God's name, but also about a fight. Had the man not cursed his neighbor, there still would have been damage done, and it's perhaps this which explains the apparent digression to speak about laws of assault. It turns out that this is not a digression at all. Hashem reiterates the laws here because there has been an assault. Had the blasphemer not received the capital punishment, one of the two sides would likely have had to pay damages to the other. So which of the two scenarios presented is closer to the truth? Obviously, the text does not give us enough details to choose between the two theories, preferring to leave the reader without the fight's background. Perhaps to emphasize that really, at the end of the day, it does not matter. Because no matter what the story, no matter what prompted it, nothing can justify or condone cursing with God's name. That is a chilul Hashem, the exact opposite of everything we have been learning about in the last few chapters of Sefer Vayikra. The Torah has been speaking again and again about how to sanctify one's life and thereby sanctify God. The blasphemer, though, desecrated both. There's one more important issue raised by our chapter, which I will touch upon only briefly. 
to basically whet your appetite. The concept known as tallying, an eye for an eye punishment. The simple reading of our chapter implies that in cases of battery and assault, one must be punished measure for measure, literally giving an eye for an eye. If I knock out your eye or tooth, my eye or tooth must be knocked out in turn. However, Chazal almost unanimously conclude that the verse should be understood metaphorically and that it in fact refers not to an eye for an eye, but to monetary compensation. The issue raises important questions about the relationship between Pshat and Drash. How can the simple sense of the verse be reconciled with Chazal's interpretation of it? This interpretation raises also many questions about how to view the purpose of punishment in general. What is the appropriate balance between the often competing objectives of restitution, retribution, rehabilitation, and deterrence? If one person gouges out another person's eye or chops off another person's hands, what form of punishment should he receive? While extracting the eye or hand of the aggressor might be the most effective form of deterrence, this offers little tangible benefit to the injured party. In contrast, monetary payment might help compensate the victim for the loss of his vision, but it does not provide nearly the same satisfying sense of just deserts as would physical punishment. We'll leave these questions as food for thought as we conclude our learning of Parashat Emor. Emir Hashem, next class will open up Parashat Bahar, which focuses on the laws of both Shemitah and Yovel, the, sab the sabbatical and jubilee years.